0: Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to Calvary Church on Pentecost Sunday. Fifty days have passed from Resurrection Sunday and here we are now opening the Word of God in Acts chapter 2, the seminal passage that speaks to us about the Pentecostal experience. So we'll begin reading in Acts chapter 2. Follow with me. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared unto them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look! Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Whatever could this mean? That question, whatever could this mean, was first framed amidst the confusion of Pentecost in the temple courts in Jerusalem. It needs to be asked again amidst the confusion of modern Pentecostalism. Whatever could this mean? At Pentecost, a multi-ethnic gathering in the temple courts in Jerusalem heard Galileans speaking the praises of God fluently in in multiple languages, languages the speakers had never learned. The praise was of such glory and such power that those who heard struggled to put the whole picture together. Here were uneducated Galileans speaking with unusual eloquence. Fishermen were behaving like statesmen and their preaching was irresistible. Peter, who just a few days before had so tragically messed up, now stood up and then spoke up and he explained this phenomenon was foretold in the scripture and that it all centered on Jesus, his promises and his lordship, And the promise of God that was happening even then among them. The promise of God was for all men and women everywhere at every time. And that this pathway leading to such a power encounter with God was and is forever and always shall be accessed through surrender and repentance. While time has reduced the great temple court where Peter spoke to a single retaining foundation wall, the question remains, whatever could this mean? My first memories of being tipped off that my church was a little bit different came in the form of a question in first grade. Do people roll around on the floor at your church? That was the question. Do people roll around on the floor in your church? It was an honest and sincere question, not mockery, from a little boy whose father had told him that my dad's church was a church of holy rollers. I found out quickly that it wasn't just unbelievers who didn't believe in the present person and work of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit in the church in the present age. A lot of church people, didn't really believe that the Holy Spirit, as in the book of Acts, was at work in the church today. I found very early that not all churches believed that you needed a life-changing encounter with God. You just had to sign up. Showing up and paying up were optional and appreciated, but really you just had to sign up. Being a prominent Pentecostal preacher's kid, I found out early that people made fun of us They told lies about us, but few of them ever asked the question we find in Acts 2, whatever could this mean? And today, more than ever, people need to know what Pentecost means, what tongues and interpretation mean, what prophecy means. And if our nation will experience a genuine revival once again, oh God help us, once again, they'll want to know even more. But can we tell them what it means? I'm not so sure we don't create more questions than we answer. We're not very unified. We're not always very articulate. So by way of review and proclamation, I propose that contemporary Pentecostals need to take five steps to ensure that the world and church receive the truth and the power that Jesus promised. In order to be able to stand up and speak truth in this confusing environment, we need to be very clear on these things. Number one, we must reaffirm the promise. Reaffirm the promise. Jesus made it very clear in John 14 and in John 16. There was no ambiguity whatsoever. He foretold in the upper room, Pentecost isn't something that the modern church has invented, it came from the heart of God and Jesus announced it. He said, this is what's going to happen. John 14, 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Pentecost is a part of God's inheritance for every believer. He clearly informed the disciples' expectations when he said in Acts 1 and 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This promised power would be modeled in Jerusalem and then demonstrated to the whole world. Indeed, this power, the early church demonstrated, had never been seen in the world before, not in this dimension. The Thessalonian rulers said to the apostle back in Acts chapter 17 and 6, These who have turned the world upside down have come to us also. The apostles walking in the power of the Spirit were viewed by the communities they walked into as world changers. Paul wasn't there on the day of Pentecost. He wasn't even converted when Peter stood up and preached on the promise of the power of the Spirit, but he received that promise and changed the course of human history. So the power wasn't just for the 11 that remained. Acts 2.39, for the promises for you and for your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. People need to know this spiritual power is God's promise to us. If you're seeking the fullness of the Spirit's power, you've prayed but you've not really experienced that and you're weary and you're tired and you're confused because you've not yet felt that infusion of power and the the awesome presence that sweeps over us. You've not experienced any of the signs that you see in the scripture. All I can tell you is this, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, seek the Lord for his empowering presence. This is his promise. For you. Our God is a covenant keeping, promise keeping, gift giving Father. We have to reaffirm that promise. The promise is for you. Secondly, we have to reestablish the priority reestablish the priority in Acts 1, 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Don't depart Jerusalem. Don't try and do the work in your own strength. Wait until you have been empowered. There's a priority here. I believe we have grown all too accustomed to doing God's work according to our own abilities. We have ceased to be people who wait upon the Lord for the renewal of strength. We just forge ahead thinking that our ingenuity and our determination will ultimately see us through. Life-changing ministries operate by God's power alone. We must first be empowered by the Spirit before we can do anything of substance in this darkened world. Dr. Carl Bates, years ago, wrote, if God were to call his Holy Spirit out of the world, about 95% of what we are doing would just go on and we would brag about it. He closes with this question, and I've never been able to escape it. What are you doing that can't get done unless the power of the Holy Spirit falls on your ministry? What are you doing that cannot get done unless the Holy Spirit falls on your ministry? I ask that question more and more. What can't get done unless the Spirit falls on my ministry? See, these are issues of eternal consequence. These are supernatural issues. Churches these days are measured by what they possess. Members, money, monuments, ministries. The early church possessed none of that. And yet, they possessed a spiritual power that shook the nations. Paul's catalog of a spiritual ministry stands counterculture to today. See, when we think of ministry, we think, well, this pastor has a successful ministry, so he has this kind of building, and he has this kind of numbers, and they bring in this kind of money, and they do these projects around the world, and all of that is just a, a... It's part and parcel of the ministry, but it's not the core. Look at Paul's catalog for the marks of a spiritual ministry in 2 Corinthians 6 and 4. It looks very different than what we see today on the horizon. Paul says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. So here it is. We commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, In imprisonments, in tumults, in labor, in sleeplessness, in fasting, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right and the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet known, as dying, behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. This is true success literature. This is true leadership training. Paul was willing to endure anything for the sake of the gospel and he knew he could, he knew he could, not because of his buildings, not because of his money, not because of the numbers who followed him. He knew that he could because of the spirit of God that dwelt within him. When we are people possessed of the spirit of God, filled with the spirit of God, we can confront anything. We will not watch the news wringing our hands saying, oh, look at what is happening in the world. We will not live with fear. We will not tremble when we are full of the Spirit's power because it is a transcendent power that can lead us through anything and walk us and walk us in the confidence of God through every circumstance. We must reestablish this priority in the church, the fullness of the Spirit's power we must wait on the lord and receive that power before we try and accomplish you don't fake it till you make it you get on your knees or even your face before god and say lord unless you empower me unless you strengthen me now unless you come upon me i lack everything i need for true spiritual work in the world we need this reestablished priority From the prophet of God facing an impossible task of building a city out of rubble comes the battle cry for the modern church. Zechariah 4 and 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So reaffirm the promise, reestablish the priority. Third, we must redefine the purpose. Acts chapter 1 Verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Dei Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. You'll be witnesses. This is the crux of the question they were asking on the day of Pentecost. What could this mean? And the answer, the ultimate answer is souls transformed lives a changed world salvation to the lost in the absence of a clear biblical answer to what does this mean the void is filled with all manner of craziness i say we must redefine the purpose of pentecost because in our culture we hear very little these days of power for living for christ or power to take the gospel to the ends of the earth We do, however, hear a lot about ecstatic experiences, emotional excesses, and personal revelations. Please don't misunderstand me. I know the Holy Spirit comes as the comforter. He is the one who comes alongside to help. I know he moves us deeply, overwhelms us emotionally, thrills us, and fills us. But there is a purpose we so often miss, We do not take Pentecostal power to its ultimate end, biblical end. J. Stuart Holden summed it up best a hundred years ago when he said, spiritual ecstasy, which is not translated to Christian energy, bears no sign of divine origin or approval. Let me say it again, spiritual ecstasy that is not translated into Christian energy bears no sign of divine origin or divine approval. You see, our Heavenly Father did not send the Holy Spirit to the church to be a feel-good stimulant. The Holy Spirit has not come primarily for our edification, that's secondary. His primary purpose has been lost in the carnival atmosphere of our Pentecostal culture. The Holy Spirit has come to empower the church to finish the work Jesus started. That is, to seek and to save that which is lost. He has come to bring divine enablement to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, when this truth is not at the very center of Pentecostal doctrine, our doctrine becomes diminished and distorted. The Holy Spirit has come to enable the birthing of spiritual life through us. Holy Ghost revival should result in spiritual nurseries being filled. Holy Ghost revival should result in a dire need for new believer classes. If it's truly a Holy Spirit-led revival, it should result in the outpouring of God, the infilling of the body, and the overflow of that that touches the community all around us. It's not just for us. We may see people experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit like in Acts 2 and 4. They may have an experience, but how far do they move beyond that experience? Do they take Pentecost to its biblical outworking? See, Pentecost, I'm afraid, becomes somewhat domesticated within our four walls of the church. And nothing like the power that marked the early church is ever let loose by the church on the world. The scripture says you'll receive power after the spirit has come upon you. And it does not say, and you'll be personally edified and you'll revel in the assurance that God is really happy with you. No, 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 no. The spirit comes upon you so that you can touch and change the world through the redemptive work of Jesus as you preach, as you speak, as you reach, as you love with power, with power. So we reaffirm the promise, we reestablish the priority, and we redefine the purpose. Now the fourth thing we've got to do, we've got to reassess the price. There's always a price. Acts 2.13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. Hey, if you're afraid of being ridiculed for being a Christian, you're missing it. You're missing the point altogether. From the first outpouring in the temple courts, the Holy Spirit and his work have carried the same price. You have to be willing to be mocked and misunderstood. Study the great attributes of men and women who have done anything of consequence in the kingdom of God and you will not find shame among them. They were not ashamed of the gospel and they were not seeking the love and the approval of the world. We do. We live in the day of the poll, the approval poll. You can see the president's numbers every day. You can see Congress's numbers every day. We've got websites galore, polling sites galore. We've got entire organizations that do nothing but inform us of group think. And when the church is trying to answer groupthink. think, Rather than scriptural mandate, we miss the pitch every time. We're very concerned about what people will think of us. We create personas on social media, we craft false images. I'm guilty of it on Facebook, I look a lot better than I really am. I'm not all that. I don't put up the stuff that makes me look bad. I only put up the stuff that makes me look as good as I can possibly make me look. We care too much about what other people might say or what they might think. Some Christian leaders have advocated moving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues or prophetic utterance, these utterance gifts especially, moving these things completely out of the large group setting and doing, doing that only in small groups. And they say it's too alienating to an unbeliever to hear a message in tongues or to understand what is happening with prophecy. And so on Sunday morning in many Pentecostal churches, the gifts of the Spirit are hard to believe. Uh, out of order? Paul asserted that interpreted tongues or explained prophecy, these are signs. They're signs to the unbeliever. Paul said so. We are supposed to answer the question, whatever could this mean? Not avoid raising the question altogether. We shouldn't run away from it. We've got to embrace it. The truth is that there is a high probability of misunderstanding at best, even rejection at the extreme, that the church must be prepared for. But hasn't it always been so? Isn't this just part of the proclamation of the gospel? Listen, when Jesus sent out the 70, listen to the language that he used. Matthew 10 and 16. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they'll deliver you up to councils to scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry, Don't worry about what you should speak for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak for it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. On the day of Pentecost, some said they were drunk. When Paul appeared before Festus in Acts chapter 25, the governor Festus said, Paul, you're mad. The apostles saved John We're all martyred for the empowering message that they preach. Should we expect to be loved and embraced by the world preaching the same message? If you missed the shift, the days of popularity for the Christian right and born again believers, that has passed. Christians are going to be more and more marginalized and criticized by a culture where tolerance and acceptance have become the shining lights on the hill. We tolerate and accept almost anything these days except the truth. For if you follow the law of relativism, absolute truth doesn't exist, so you can't tolerate truth. Pentecostal people who stand on the scriptures and speak an absolute truth, we must be willing to be out of step with our culture. We must be willing to pay that price. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. We reaffirm the promise. We reestablish the priority. We redefine the Purpose. We reassess the price. And finally, we must reacquire the power. 35 years ago, it may have been more than that, I read a passage by Karl Barth that I immediately scribbled down on a pad and it has not faded in its relevance or its import in my life since then. It seems even more appropriate today as when I first read it. Barth said, The world which we confront today is aggressively pagan. Many influences in modern life work to undermine the Christian view of life and subtly to convert even church people from an outright faith. The only adequate answer is for Christians to recover the New Testament power of spiritual aggression. The New Testament power of spiritual aggression. That power will not come by... The stirring up of our enthusiasm, it will only come by experiencing the power of God, an encounter with Jesus, whom John the Baptist said, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Canon Streeter defined spiritual power as the ability to accomplish a purpose, the ability to accomplish a purpose. It's a simple yet illuminating definition. Power is not power unless it can accomplish the purpose for which it is applied. For instance, an axe is a powerful tool for chopping wood, but its purpose in shaving has its limitations. Dynamite is a powerful device for blasting rocks, but for the purpose of putting a baby to sleep or teaching the ABCs, it's useless. So when we claim power, we have to say power for what? If the purpose is to smash the world to powder, it seems we have that power. But if the purpose is to save the world and unite it, and turn men away from savage, savagery to civilization to cleanse the heart of racial hatred and violence towards women, to help men and women find peace with God and with each other, then the power we are putting our trust in and spending most of our money for is somewhat less than effective. Power is the ability to accomplish purpose. You'll receive power What's the power for? To change the world with the truth of the gospel. So what shall we do? Where do we go from here? We need to go back to Acts 1 and 4 and wait on God for the empowering work of the Spirit. It's not enough that we once had an experience that we were once filled. It's not enough that we were once deeply enthused. It's not enough that we were once effective, we must be effective now. And for that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us. And the need has never been more critical. You see, the church is the only redeeming agency in the world today that touches eternity. The church is the only redeeming agency in the world that touches eternity. We are called to be an empowered church or the world knows only darkness. We are called to be an empowered church, or the world descends further into chaos. Should we abandon, should we abandon this gaping disconnect between the world and her creator, there will be no bridge across the great divide. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Reaffirm the promise. Reestablish the priority. Redefine the purpose. Reassess the price. Reacquire the power. Father, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit according to the Scripture. Every promise in John, in Ephesians, in the book of Acts. Every promise, I pray in the name of Jesus, we would grasp these as ours. You have commanded us, be filled with the Spirit. And so may that prayer rise from our lips and from our hearts. And may we, O Lord, experience you in a spiritual dimension of power, unlike anything we have ever known. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In the coming days, I know you want to know when will we open our doors. Our plan has been to open on the 7th. We're pushing, pushing hard to see everything in place so that on the seventh, we can open our doors and yet continue to live stream with you. Later this week, I'll be filling you in on exactly where we are. We're still shooting for the seventh. Pray with us, walk with us. I want to say to you, I appreciate so much your faithfulness in giving. You have helped walk us through this dark, dark passage. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. Continue to walk with us in faithfulness. We believe that our greatest days as a church are just around the corner.